One of the popular discussions in our day and age, a topic of discussion, even among a number of non-Christians, is the topic of a world leader who is called in Scripture the Antichrist. I'm sure you are aware of the fact that there have been secular and Christian movies made about that future world leader. There have been books and articles written about him by Christians and non-Christians alike. He is a captivating figure, and many people are fascinated by who he will be and what he will be like and when he will arrive on the scene and what he will do. Unbridled speculation has often dominated the discussion by those who have said it was Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini or someone else. Many people in society know the term Antichrist. This is not only true today in the 21st century, this was even true in the 1st century. All the way back then, there was talk about this individual known as the Antichrist, as we'll see in our text this morning. Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 2 over near the end of the New Testament. Maybe find the book of Revelation and go backwards a little bit to 1 John chapter 2. And I invite you to follow along as I read verses 18 through 23, which will form our text of consideration this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children... It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things, or you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As you can see from reading through this section of John's letter, he begins this paragraph of thought with the acknowledgement that his readers had heard about and knew about a coming world leader known as the Antichrist. That begs the question, how did they know about this person and what was the source of their information? The answer to that question is found in the book of Daniel all the way back in Hebrew Scripture. We don't have time to look at all of the passages, but suffice it to say, the book of Daniel has several passages of Scripture describing this future world leader. He is never called the Antichrist in the book of Daniel, but he is clearly described or mentioned in chapters 7, 9, 11, and 12 of Daniel's prophecy. So John's readers had heard about this future world leader, and somewhere along the way, the title Antichrist was given to him, and that title stuck. The word Antichrist has two meanings that are similar but not identical. 
The word is actually a combination of two Greek words, anti, it's a preposition in the Greek language, anti and Christos. The word Christos means Christ or anointed one, and the word anti means instead of or against. So when you put the two terms together and come up with the word antichrist, it means someone who is instead of Christ and or someone who is against Christ. That is exactly what the future Antichrist will be. He will be a leader who will seek to take the place of the true Christ. So he will be instead of Christ, and he will oppose the true Christ. Because that is what this future leader will be and do, John builds on those ideas to warn his readers, and us by extension, that there are already many people in society who try to take the place of the true Christ and who oppose the true Christ. Now, they are not the ultimate antichrist, the, the one spoken of in Daniel's prophecy, the one spoken of in the book of Revelation. They are not the ultimate antichrist, but they are antichrists in their own right. They are people who try to take the place of the true Christ and who oppose the true Christ. Surprisingly, many of the people in this category are religious people. They are religious leaders, even within Christendom, who are not willing to believe in and not willing to submit to the true Christ. So there is a sense in which they put themselves in place of the true Christ and they end up opposing the true Christ. That's the basic point of what John says in this paragraph of his letter. As John writes these words of instruction, he presents another objective test or indicator of genuine salvation. You may remember that I mentioned a few weeks ago that there are actually three here in this letter. Three tests of genuine salvation. The three tests or indicators of genuine salvation that John mentions in this letter are the moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal test. The moral test of salvation is the test of obedience or righteousness, whichever term you prefer. The social test of salvation is the test of love for other believers. And the doctrinal test of salvation is the test of truth. Let me say that again. The moral test of salvation is the test of obedience The social test of salvation is the test of love, and the doctrinal test of salvation is the test of truth. Verses 3 through 6 of this second chapter deal with the moral test of obedience or righteousness. Verses 7 through 11, and then chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, deal with the social test of love. And verses 18 through 27 of this chapter, which we are beginning to look at this morning, those verses deal with the doctrinal test of truth or belief in Jesus Christ. We've already looked at the first of these, which is the test of obedience or righteousness as set forth in verses 3 through 6 of this chapter. In those verses, you may remember that we saw that the Holy Spirit tells us that the person who truly knows God and truly knows Jesus Christ will grow in righteousness or obedience. It does not mean that we will be sinless. Because chapter 1 clearly tells us that the person who claims to be sinless is lying. 
So the issue isn't perfection, it's direction. The direction of a person's life who truly knows God, who truly knows Jesus Christ, will be toward righteousness or obedience. Now this doesn't mean that a true Christian can't sin. It doesn't mean that a true Christian can't fall, can't fail, or can't get sidetracked for a period of time. A true child of God can do any of those things. But if you look at the big picture of a person's life as a whole, a person who knows Christ, it will be characterized by obedience and will be moving toward righteousness. It's sort of like a graph that steadily moves upward, though there are drops and dips and even flat lines along the way. So that's the first test or indicator of salvation mentioned in this letter, which is the test of obedience or the test of righteousness. That's the moral test. The second test or indicator of genuine salvation is the social test of love. We began to look at that subject in verses 7 through 11 of this chapter, and John will return to it specifically over in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So we'll come back to that topic in the days ahead, Lord willing. This morning we come to the third indicator or third test of salvation, which is the doctrinal test of truth or belief in Jesus Christ. To be more specific, it is not merely belief in Jesus Christ as you or I define him. That's not the test. It is belief in Jesus Christ as he truly is. You see, there are many people and religious groups that claim to believe in Jesus. Many. You know that. But their definition of Jesus is not the same as that which is presented in the written Word of God. It's a different definition. That's why John presents the doctrinal test of truth. It is not sufficient. Please hear this. It's not sufficient to claim to believe in Jesus if your belief in Jesus doesn't line up with the truth. We don't have the right to define Jesus the way we want him to be or the way we wish he would be. That's what a lot of people do, frankly, and a lot of churches do, and a lot of religious groups do. When that kind of redefining takes place, then the person or the church or the religious group, whatever it may be, fails the doctrinal test of truth. So with that in mind, let's consider this text together. Notice how John begins to introduce this topic. He says in verse 18, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. John opens this section with a term of affection or endearment. He refers to his readers as little children or dear children. As I've mentioned previously, John was in his 80s and maybe even his 90s when he wrote this letter. So probably all of his readers were younger than he was and most of them were way younger. So he saw them as his dear little children. Therefore, he had a huge heart of compassion toward them and he wanted to do everything he could to protect them from confusion and error. That's what prompted him to write these words. He knew there was the potential that they would be confused by the false spiritual leaders who were enticing them. 
He says that very thing over in verse 26. Notice near the end of this section where he says, verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. John was concerned for his readers. He knew how confusing religion and religious leaders can be, especially if they talk about Jesus Christ and claim to believe in Jesus Christ. So he writes these words to warn them and to instruct them and to protect them. And he says in verse 18, it is the last hour. The phrase, the last hour, or a similar phrase, the last days, is a term used in the New Testament to refer to the time of the Messiah. In other words, when Messiah Jesus came on the scene, when Messiah Jesus came to this earth, that began the last hour or the last days. We, today, are living in the last hour, and so were the believers in the first century. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, that that doesn't make sense. How, How can that be? How can we be living in the last hour and they be living in the last hour? It's 2,000 years apart. Well, one of the reasons why it can be said that we are living in the last hour is because Messiah Jesus could come back at any moment. Scripture tells us to be ready. He could come back at any moment. This was also true in the first century. Jesus could come back at any moment. That is known as the doctrine of imminence. Jesus could come back at any moment, which is why John says it is the last hour. We are living on the precipice. We are living on the edge. Jesus could come back at any moment. We need to be ready. Then he mentions their awareness of the Antichrist when he says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. John's readers knew about this person who would try to take the place of the true Christ and who would oppose the true Christ. However, what they maybe didn't know is that there will be many religious people who do that very thing prior to the time when the final and ultimate Antichrist bursts on the scene. So John says, without any hesitation, even now, many antichrists have come. There are many people, especially those in religion, who try to take the place of the true Christ and who oppose the true Christ. It may may sound strange to hear that, beloved, about religious people and religious leaders, but it's true. Religion is Satan's greatest masterpiece and his most brilliant plan to confuse people. When we think of the work of Satan, we often think of things like drug addiction, alcoholism, prostitution, pornography, murder, witchcraft, sorcery, etc. Granted, Satan is involved in those things, but his greatest work by far is religion. As Dave Brees once brilliantly said, with the occult, Satan has trapped thousands. With false doctrine, he has trapped millions. Let the reality of that statement sink into your mind. With the occult, Satan has trapped thousands. There are thousands of people involved in witchcraft, sorcery, occult practices. But with false doctrine, he has trapped millions. Satan loves to confuse people with religion, and especially religion that claims to be Christian. That's why John was so concerned as he penned this letter. He wanted his readers and us to know that there are many people who had usurped a position in place of Christ, and many of those people, 
are called in our day, they are called pastors, vicars, cardinals, fathers, popes, priests, reverends, etc. Those who refuse to embrace and promote a fully and truly biblical Christ have, whether they admit it or not, whether they realize it or not, they have adopted a position that is actually anti-Christ, which is why John said they are antichrists. This is the Holy Spirit's warning to us through John. It is clear that John is referring to false religious teachers who claimed to represent Christ. They had been exposed to the truth, but they had walked away from it because it was too narrow for them or too hardline for them or too restricted for them or whatever the motivation. He says in verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. These false religious leaders and teachers had previously spent time around true believers. But somewhere along the way, and for some reason, they had walked away. Beloved, watch this. This is so often the way it is with apostates and apostate false teachers. Many times there are people who were raised in a solid Christian church or who spent time in a solid Christian church, but after a while they decide that the biblical picture of Christ is not the one which, which, with which they are comfortable. As a result, they leave, they bail out, they forsake, but they don't want to completely throw out Jesus. So here's what they do. They just redefine him. And they join with a group of others who have also redefined him. And let me assure you, there are many groups like that under the umbrella of Christendom. There are churches, for example, that do not believe in the biblical doctrine of hell that Jesus taught. There are churches that do not believe in the book of Genesis, which Jesus affirmed. There are churches that do not believe in the exclusivity of salvation by faith alone in Jesus alone, which Jesus taught. There are churches that do not believe in sin as Jesus defined it. There are churches that do not believe in repentance as Jesus demanded it. Yet, these churches call themselves Christian churches, and they are led by men or women who talk about Jesus and talk about the Bible, but it's a very scaled-down message. Many of the people and leaders in these churches have at one time been around other believers who hold to everything taught in the Word of God, but they eventually become uncomfortable with those positions. So they leave. They bail. That is exactly what John is describing here in verse 19. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, they left us, but they were never really a part of us. And then he adds, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they had had been true and genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented in Scripture, if they had, had truly embraced Christ, they would not have bailed out. And then the last part of the verse says that their departure demonstrated that they were not real and genuine. Beloved, this still happens today. Surely you know this happens. As I was studying through these verses... Understandably, many people came to my mind who through the years uh, have eventually walked away from the church, walked away from the Lord, walked away from the Word of God. We've even had a couple board members who've done that through the years. 
They, they came to the point where they just weren't comfortable with a fully biblical position of Christ. And the interesting thing about it is that many times people like this end up connecting with a church or a group that still claims to believe in Jesus, but just not the Jesus presented in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit is telling us in this text, whether they realize it or not, they have adopted a position that is against Christ, or anti-Christ. And this kind of thing is often very confusing to those who believe in and embrace the true Christ as presented in Scripture. They begin to wonder if they've missed something. They begin to wonder if they've believed something that is wrong. It is unsettling to them. John knew that was the case, which is why he wrote the next verse. He says in verse 20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things, or you all know. John is basically saying this, Listen, the Holy Spirit of God has given you life and taken up residence in your life and has enlightened you to be able to grasp the truth. You already know the truth. You don't need to wonder if you're missing something. You all know. You all have knowledge. Side note here, my translation says you know all things, which could be a little misleading because they obviously weren't omniscient. They didn't know everything, or else John would not be writing this letter to instruct them. The very fact that he wrote this letter to instruct them shows that they still had things to learn. They didn't know everything. But here in verse 20, John is affirming that they knew the truth about Christ. They knew who he was. They knew what he stood for. They knew what he claimed. They knew what he taught. So they did not need to listen to these people who had walked away from that accurate picture of Christ and were confusing them. They didn't need to listen to that. In verse 21, he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. This verse shows us that John was not implying in verse 20 that they knew everything, but rather he was saying that they already did know the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been taught accurately. They had believed properly. They didn't, they didn't have to worry. They didn't have to be worried that they had believed in something that wasn't true. They didn't have to be concerned that they had missed something. The religious people and leaders who were trying to deceive them as John mentions in verse 26, did not have some kind of new information about Jesus or some kind of secret knowledge of him, some, some type of something that these believers didn't have access to. Their new perspective of Jesus did not find its source in the truth. That's what John means by the last phrase of this verse. No lie comes from the truth. In other words, the information these religious people and leaders were propagating did not line up with the truth, and therefore it was a lie. John's wording is very strong here, is it not? Remember now, this is the apostle of love. That was John's title. He was the apostle of love. His wording is very strong here. He refers to people who do not hold to a biblical position of the Lord Jesus as antichrists, and he calls their teaching a lie. That's strong language, and it shows us how serious these issues are. When people claim to believe in Jesus, but it's not the Jesus that's presented in Scripture, that is serious business. 
It is nothing to take lightly. I mean, we're talking about people's eternal destiny here. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am is the personal name of God that he revealed to Moses back in Exodus 3. So Jesus was saying this, If you do not believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. The person who denies the deity of Jesus cancels himself or herself from forgiveness and salvation. That's how serious this is. That's why John is using such strong language in this passage. The person who says Jesus was just a good man, good teacher, or good rabbi, or just a moral person, or just a messenger of God, or just an example to humanity, or just a kind religious leader, or just a prophet, or just the Son of God, in some kind of inferior sense, is embracing a position that will result in eternal damnation. Believing in a Jesus that is not the true Jesus is worthless. In fact, it's worse than worthless. It's worse than worthless. I'll tell you why. Because many people in that kind of situation think they are just fine. Because after all, they believe in Jesus. So they think they're fine. That is damning deception. Those inadequate views of Jesus are lies, says the Holy Spirit through John in this passage. And the people who promote them are actually, whether they realize it or not, whether they see it or not, they are anti-Christ. That is, against the true Christ. They are anti-Christs who are liars in the way they misrepresent Jesus. And so John says in verse 22, Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is anti-Christ who denies the Father and the Son. Here John mentions a specific issue that was common in his day. There were people who believed in Jesus as a good rabbi, or a good moral teacher, or a popular religious leader, or a prophet, but they denied that he was the fulfillment of the predictions in Hebrew Scripture concerning the coming Messiah. As I mentioned earlier, the word Christ means anointed one, and it's the Greek term for the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, or Hebrew Scripture. It's actually a title, not a name. Our Lord's name was Jesus, Jesus in Greek, Yeshua in Hebrew, but his last name wasn't Christ. Jesus Christ literally means Jesus the Messiah, and Christ Jesus means Messiah Jesus. But there were those in John's day who denied that Jesus was the Christ. Now understand something. They didn't deny that he existed. And they may have even affirmed that he was a good man or a prophet. But they denied that he was the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I'll never forget the Jewish gentleman I talked with down at the Western Wall on one occasion. I've told this story in the past. Uh, We ended up in a conversation. It was a friendly conversation, but in the process he said, well, I know who you think Jesus is. Let me tell you who I think he is. He was a good rabbi. He was a very good rabbi. He had some disciples. They were from rural Galilee. He decided to give them a big, big city experience, so he brought them to Jerusalem. The whole experience was overwhelming, and to Jesus and his disciples, he ended up getting himself killed. He did not deny that Jesus existed. He affirmed he was a good man, a good rabbi, 
That's the kind of person John is talking about here. The person who promotes that kind of view of Jesus is a liar, says the Holy Spirit through John in the first part of this verse. Not only is that person a liar in the view that he presents, he is anti-Christ. That is, he is against the true Christ. And there's a sense in which he has put himself in place of Christ. When you refuse to embrace and affirm a fully scriptural view of the Lord Jesus, you are basically holding yourself up as an authority in place of the Lord. That's exactly what many religious leaders do, though they may not see it that way. The last phrase in this verse says, He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. John's wording is interesting here because he doesn't say who denies the Father or the Son. If someone denies the Father, that person is an atheist, right? That's what you call someone who just denies God, that there's a God. That person is an atheist, and that's not what John is addressing here. John is not talking about atheism. John has in mind the person who denies Jesus as the Son of God, and he is saying that the person who does that is also denying the Father. If you deny Jesus as the Son of God, who is equal with the Father, then you need to realize you are denying the Father also. That's basically what John is saying. The person who denies Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is also denying the Father. Beloved, this strikes a lethal blow against those who claim to believe in God. Do you know how many people there are like this in the world? People who claim to believe in God, and they claim to be right with God. They claim to be children of God, but they deny the Messiahship and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are cults who fall into this category, but they aren't the only ones. Those who deny the full sonship of Jesus and all that means are not right with God no matter what they claim. They are actually denying God the Father also, though they may not realize that, they may not accept it, they may not believe it. John says they are also denying the Father. You can't claim to be right with God, to be right with the Father when you deny what is true about the Son. And so John adds, verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. This makes clear what John was just saying in verse 22. A person cannot deny the full sonship of Jesus and all that means, his deity, his humanity, his messiahship. A person cannot deny those things and still be in a right relationship with God. Now, there are many people in our world who claim that they are, right with God. But such a person, says the Holy Spirit here, such a person does not have God the Father either, regardless of what he or she claims. Now maybe you're asking yourself this question. Where did John get this view? This view that many people would call narrow and close-minded. Where did John come up with this? I'll tell you where. He got this from Jesus himself. Back up with me to John chapter 5 as we begin to wind down this morning. And notice what Jesus taught, what Jesus said, and what clearly stuck with John and was behind what he wrote here in 1 John chapter 2. All the way back to the Gospel of John chapter 5. 
Verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, by the way, context here, this comes right on the heels. I mean, right after a section where Jesus claims to be God and the Jews, the Jewish leaders tried to kill him for claiming deity. So coming right off of that, right off of his monumental claim to be deity, and the Jews understanding his claim, that's why they wanted to kill him. Coming right off of that, notice what Jesus does. Rather than backing down, which we might suppose he would do, he actually goes on the offensive. Notice what he says, verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, that was his strong affirmation, truly, truly, verily, verily, get this, hear this, listen to this. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in the like manner. Here Jesus is basically saying this. I don't act independently of the Father. I don't act in opposition to the Father. I work with the Father. We are one. We work hand in hand. As one man put it, like a shadow which is neither identical to nor independent of the substance from which it is cast, so the Son and the Father are distinct from yet dependent upon each other. Jesus mimicked the Father so perfectly that in John 14, 9, he could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then notice verse 20. Jesus doesn't back down. He continues to push this issue. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. One of the prerogatives of deity is the right over life and death. And here Jesus claims that right for himself. He claims to have the right, the authority over life and death. But he not only claims that right for himself, he also says that it is his sovereign choice. Did you catch that? At the end of the verse he says, The Son gives life to whom he will. To whom he chooses. And the point that Jesus is making in these verses is that he and the Father are one in their works because they are both deity. They both have this right, this prerogative. They are in complete unity. And in verse 22, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now think about the implications of that statement. Only God can judge with absolute equity. And Jesus has been given the responsibility of all judgment because he is equal with God. Most people do not realize, in fact, I would even venture the statement, most Christians do not realize that Jesus is going to be the one to carry out all the final judgments at the end of the days. We see that in the book of Revelation as he breaks these seals and judgment is unleashed on the earth. But even later, the sheep and goat judgment he will carry out. The great white throne judgment. Most think it will be the Father who does the judging at the great white throne judgment. But it won't be. It will be Jesus Christ who judges the lost of all the ages. And since Jesus is the one who will carry out all judgment, he can claim equal Status with the Father, equal honor with the Father, and he does so. Verse 23, he says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, beloved, think about that statement in a Jewish context. For Jesus to say that, 
You should honor the Son just like you honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There are those today, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, other such cult groups and liberal churches who claim to worship God, but they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. According to this verse, that kind of worship is repulsive to God. It's repulsive. You can't honor the Father without honoring the Son. And if you aren't honoring the Son, then the Father doesn't want that kind of worship. These are strong words to so many different religious groups of our day and age who think they can worship God, but at the same time deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's a mockery to God. As 1 John 2.23 puts it, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. You see, Jesus taught it, and John got his teaching straight from Jesus. This is an important point to emphasize because there are many people in society today who claim to like Jesus. Now hear this. They claim to like Jesus, but they don't like Christians because they say Christians are too narrow. Well, it is possible that there are some Christians who are more narrow than they need to be. But remember, it was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow. Jesus claimed to be the only way to be right with God. There are no other paths, no other avenues, no other ways. Jesus claimed to be the exclusive way. So I ask you this morning, do you know him? Not do you know about him, do you know him personally as your Lord and Savior? If not, receive him today, this very moment, as we bow together in closing. Please bow your head with me. As you bow your head in closing this morning, ask yourself that question, do I really know Jesus Christ? Not just know of him, not just know about him. Do I really know him? Do I know him personally as my Lord and Savior? If you do not, or if there are any doubts in your mind, don't leave here this morning with that plaguing you. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ this very moment. Right where you are seated, seated right, in the quietness, right there in the quietness of your own heart, Ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive your sins, to be your personal Lord and Savior. If you do know Jesus Christ personally, don't be confused. Don't be confused by all the religiosity around us that presents and holds to another Jesus, not the one that's presented in Scripture. Don't be confused. Don't think you've missed something. Don't think you've believed wrongly. Believe the truth. Hold to the truth. Don't move from the gospel. That's the message that John gives us in 1 John chapter 2. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for its straightforward message to us still today here in the 21st century. We know that John wrote because of what was going on in, in his day right there in the first century. But there's a sense in which things never change. The truth has always been the truth, 
and the evil one will seek to confuse the truth in any way he can, and he has done that down through the ages, still today with new religious groups bursting on the scene that refuse to hold to a truly and fully biblical position of your son, the confusion just becomes more rampant, more deceitful. And so encourage our hearts with the truth. Enable us to hold to the truth without any doubts, without any, without any second guessing, to know that we have seen, heard, and believed and embraced the truth. And Father, we would pray in closing for anyone who is here this morning who does not know your Son personally as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction to the heart of that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, so that this would be the day he or she would surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.